Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. Spooksters, and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara, and as always, I am joined with my ghoul friend, Jessica. Hello. Hello. And today we are going to be diving into the topic of the Long Island serial killer. You may have heard of this. You may have not. There's a popular Netflix movie that came out this year called The Lost Girls. So this might be semi-familiar to some of you guys out there was also requested by a few of you as well. It's true. But before we get into that, if you are new here, we want to say hello and welcome. If you are a returning spookster, welcome back. We are so happy to have you here listening to us. If you would like to hang out with us on social media, you can head to the show notes. We have a link tree that revolves all things Three Spooked Girls, or you can find us on the major platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our handle is at Three Spooked Girls. Along with that, we do have an amazing Facebook group that we love to dote on each and every week, as you guys hear. That is Three Spooked Girls official. We do watch parties. We have cool memes. We uh, post about Carol Baskin's cameos and ghost adventures, <laughs> typically. Yes. <laughs> and pets. And pets, too. I will say, I don't think I saw this in the group, but I saw a meme. The Carol Baskin thing did this to me. But I saw a meme or something like that or TikTok. I'm not sure. But it was like, I think it's funny that in 2020, the only thing everyone can agree on is that Carol Baskin killed her husband. <laughs> and I was like, I love this meme because of the truth behind it. <laughs> Right? Oh my god, that's awesome. But yeah, so you can come hang out with us there. It's a fun little corner of the internet for sure. If you would like to support the show, you can head to patreon.com slash three spooked girls or again in that link tree for as little as a dollar that gives you one bonus episode each and every month. After that, we have tiers that go on up and two dollars and up. They get three bonus segments a month. Five and up get four technically with one being video. If you would like to read more on that, head on over to our Patreon to check it out or our Instagram highlights. I have all of that great knowledge for you. But yeah, so you can do that there. And before we take our quick promo break, Jessica, what did you and the Bell Witch choose for our drink this week? So because it's summertime, and I don't know why, but like summertime reminds me of peaches. And also the fact that we are talking about the Long Island serial killer. I had to do a Long Island iced tea of sorts, but I was like, I don't want it to be a regular one because I'm pretty sure we've done that already. So I found a peach Long Island iced tea. That sounds delicious. I love flavored Long Island iced tea. Yeah. And I have to say this because hailing from the Chico area, there's this place called Panama's and they have like 27, 30 different flavors of Long Island iced teas. It is the place to go if you want to get fucked up on a budget. There you go. Get a giant ass 
Long Island iced tea that tastes like flipping gold in your mouth. Right. That also makes me think of the Big Bang Theory episode where Sheldon has Long Island iced tea for the first time. Penny gets him drunk. <laughs> I love Sheldon Cooper. Good times. Good times. All right, guys. Well, we're going to go ahead and take our quick promo break. We will be right back. My name is Paige, and I'm the host of Reverie True Crime. Reverie means to daydream, but even daydreams can become nightmares. Come join me and get lost in horrific reverie about true crimes and eerie events. Reverie True Crime Podcast, available wherever you stream your favorite podcasts. As they moved towards us, they grew in height and and slenderized and became distorted. And then all of a sudden I happened to look up and I saw this giant, like eight foot hairy creature just run across the road. She was claiming a man was talking to her through the sound machine. As it walked, it walked like an ape. But human, though, too, also. I swear it had to stand about maybe seven feet, seven and a half feet. Hey, everybody. I'm Steven. And I'm Kyle. And we're your hosts of the Hollow Sky Podcast, a show where we dive into the world of the paranormal and we feature your encounters. You can catch us every Monday on your favorite podcast listening platform and check us out at every social media at Hollow Sky Podcast. So let's get weird. All right. Well, welcome back, guys. Hopefully you enjoyed those promos. So we're going to go ahead and get started on the Long Island serial killer. So essentially how we're going to do it is I'm covering the victims and their backstories and whatnot. And then Jessica's going to jump in and intertwine with us for the suspects and uh, investigation, lack thereof investigation. <laughs> if you already know about this case, you already know. So It's said that the Long Island serial killer is responsible for the deaths of up to 17 people. These cases are still unsolved today. The Long Island serial killer has not been caught. Like I mentioned at the beginning, you might be familiar with this or have watched Lost Girls over on Netflix. was released this year. It was a pretty decent movie. So if this case or whatnot intrigues you, definitely go watch it. had a lot of accuracy because I believe it was based on the... Lost Girls book, which I definitely want to read because I was reading an article from that author during my research. Now, I'm going to start the episode not with the first victim, but one that led authorities to find all the rest. So Shannon Gilbert grew up in Ellenville, New York. She had three younger sisters named Sarah, Sherry, and Stevie. The girls had been separated from their mother, Mary, and placed into foster care. Eventually, Stevie and Sherry would be returned to the care of Mary, but Sarah and Shannon did not. So growing up, they had a hard childhood, to say the least, that included trauma, sexual abuse, and bad things like that. One article called it turbulent, but that's a tad dismissive in my opinion. If you kind of read into it, you'll understand. I think that's kind of like the word people use when they're trying to be like, oh, it was bad, but it was manageable. Like, that's what they're trying to say. Like, that's what I, anytime I read that, that's the context I get. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And I just don't like it. But, you know. I agree. So Shannon was diagnosed and treated for bipolar disorder during her adolescence. But once she got into high school, she stopped taking her medications because basically she said it gave her the shakes and she just didn't like all of the side effects it gave her. Then at 16, Shannon graduated high school early, and while in college, she said she wanted to be a writer, and she also had interests in singing and acting as well. After this, she was said to have worked a few different jobs, which included Applebee's as a hostess, she was a hotel receptionist, and also a food handler at a senior center. Eventually, she would meet her boyfriend, Alex Diaz, and... This turbulent, if you would like to call it that, life kind of continued on for her. It had actually been noted that she had been beaten so badly one time that she ended up getting a titanium plate in her jaw. This was also noted in the movie. And yes, it actually happened. That was true. That is like, uh, I can't imagine. My face hurts. I immediately think of like what that would mean Mm -hmm. for like the pain and then the recovery. Like, it's horrific. I know. So Shannon and Alex resided in New Jersey by this point when they moved in together, and this is when she would have a career change. She would become an escort, and she had clients typically in New York. Now, I do have to mention here, it's really frustrating when you look into this because of the opinions and all the attitude and everything from law enforcement because of what she and these other victims did for work. Right. It's fucked up because it's like people instantly hear what they do for a living and they're like, oh, they're less than. And it's like, no, they're still a freaking human, Mm -hmm. which I will say, Tara and I talked about this. It's one of the reasons like I do like the show Criminal Minds is because anytime that they're dealing with a case where there's like a sex worker, they always like humanize them and say, no, these are people. Yeah. They're no less human. Well, right. It's the party line of, well, they chose a high-risk job. Well, guess what? There's so many other high-risk jobs, but are these people getting that same attitude? No. Right. No one blames, like, a taxi driver if they get into, like, a car accident. And a taxi driver would have a higher risk of being in an accident just because they're on the road more. Mm-hmm. Or an Uber driver, I should say. No, because, like, our taxi's a thing. Um, <laughs> I don't know. But, like... If people treated people kindly and with respect, Tara and I wouldn't have a show because there would be no podcast, but like, because there'd be no crime, which in my case, I'd be fine with because it'd be like people would stop killing one another. Right. I mean, we would just talk about Disney stuff. Honestly. I know I'm harping on it, but like, please don't judge these women because what they chose to do for a living. Exactly. So just had to point out that frustration because it's just always like, I hate it. It's just like just a prostitute or just blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, they're still human beings. So fuck off. Have some compassion. So that's going to bring us to May 1st, 2010. Shannon had went over to Oak Beach, New York, just after midnight to meet up with a client named Joseph Brewer that she had met on Craigslist. And this seemed like it was a pretty commonplace thing during this time. There was like an adult section, encounters section type of thing. So a lot of escorts would go on Craigslist to get clients. She didn't go all the way over there alone, though. Uh, She had a driver and his name was Michael Pack. It was said that, quote, at some point during the visit, Gilbert began acting irrational and the individual contacted the driver to have Gilbert leave his home. Gilbert refused repeated attempts to leave the location with her driver and fled on foot into the Oak Beach community, knocking on several doors before disappearing, end quote. 
Now, we still don't know what happened in that house with the client, but something obviously set her off. It was noted she wasn't into recreational drugs, but what's interesting is that, like the quote said, she was running and knocking on people's doors, so plenty of people saw and heard her, and they described her as panicked and disoriented. Shannon would end up calling 911 herself at 4.51 a.m., and that call lasted 23 minutes. Such a long phone call. That is a long phone call, and... There's a lot of suspicion around this and a lot of like secrecy and just weird stuff. So basically, it took a whole like two year drug out court battle for a judge to finally order for the Suffolk County Police Department to release that 911 call to her family. Currently, like online, of course, there's no transcript or anything really of that. All we really have to go off of is kind of accounts of other people as far as that goes. Now, it does kind of like bring up some questions on like, why were they putting up so much of a fight to give this to her family? Like, was there something incriminating on that? Was there something they're trying to hide? Was she acting a way that I don't know, they like, I doubt they're trying to protect her because they didn't really seem to give a shit just raises a lot of questions. Right. But there is an article of an interview with someone who actually heard the call. It was former Suffolk County Chief of Detectives Dominic Verone. And he says, quote, she's saying, there's someone after me. There's someone after me. And he says, it's a girl who clearly believes she's in harm's way. And then the reporter asks, does she say who she's afraid of? And he replies, she just says they're trying to kill me. And he also goes on to say that there was two male voices in the background. It was Shannon's driver, Michael, and her client, Joseph Brewer. And he said that Joseph is heard trying to get her to leave the house and all of that. And then the detective says, quote, he either approaches her or touches her and you hear her scream out. They state that the police couldn't respond to the call because Shannon couldn't say where she was and they were having a hard time trying to locate, like triangulate where she was. Another quote is the complaint operator asking, well, where are you? And she just kind of ignores the where are you question and keeps on saying someone's after me. She sounds not very coherent, not very rational, end quote. And then the reporter asks, you know, instantly kind of like what's jumping into your head because this is a good counter question. And they asked, but wouldn't you sound that way if you were panicked and afraid? And his answer was, you can make that argument. It almost seems like she was in some type of psychotic state or in some type of drug induced stupor. So which is it? Is she in a manic psychosis or is she in a stupor? Please tell me because those are two different things. That's a very good point. So while she's running and on the phone and stuff, Shannon would end up at a neighbor's house and his name was Gus Coletti. He was a retired insurance fraud investigator and he had lived in the neighborhood for over 30 years. So like very established there. He said, quote, it was like five in the morning. I was in the bathroom shaving. All of a sudden I hear screaming out here and banging on that door yelling, help me, help me, help me. He says he opens a door and asks, like, you know, what's wrong? How can I help you? What's going on? You know, that kind of thing. And that she just wouldn't answer. So he said, quote, she kept staring at me and going, help me, help me, help me. He said then he grabbed her phone to call 911 or like talk to 911. And then when, you know, he had said like, hey, they're going to come. I told them where we're at. It'll be okay. Just sit down. He said that she just looked at him and then just like bolted out the door. 
he also does say he saw Michael Pack in his black SUV. So, you know, that coincides with the detective said earlier about hearing the male voices and also what he says as well is like for his statement. So then Gus says that he saw she was hiding under his boat that was in his yard and said that, quote, all of a sudden she took off from under the boat and he, meaning Michael, took off after her. And I yelled for him to stop and he didn't. And he followed her that around that way and gesturing like where she was running off to kind of thing. At this point, he would end up calling 911 from his phone. And it was now 521 a.m. And Shannon was said to run towards the home of another neighbor named Barbara Brennan. Other neighbors support this timeline because everyone was kind of like, what the fuck is going on? It's like five in the morning, you know, that kind of thing. And authorities would not arrive until 540. So basically been an hour at this point from when she first called. And Shannon's nowhere to be found. And apparently at this point or like when he was chasing her, Michael basically said like, fuck it and left her there and just was like, I'm done chasing you. Goodbye. Leaving. Peace. So there's that. So a couple of days would go by after Shannon didn't come home and her boyfriend, Alex, ended up calling Sherry and was just like very worried as anybody would be, especially because he knows she was out working. And Mary and her daughters say that as soon as they found this out, like they immediately went and filed a missing persons report. But this did not get them anywhere. So basically, they ended up driving to Oak Beach in Long Island and started to look for Shannon themselves. At the point where they drove over there, she had already been missing for eight days. And they go without answers for a very long time. And while on the search for Shannon, police do make other discoveries. But before I get too into that, I'm going to let Jessica chat about kind of some suspects and some other stuff we have as far as the investigation side goes of this. So obviously, like the first person that the police are going to look at is the last person really to see her alive or... I don't know if it's really because technically Michael Pack would be the last person to see her alive, but he, for some reason, was never really a person of interest, which I'm like, that seems weird. Because, like, there is no, like, if you scour the internet, there's no one who's ever been like, Michael Pack killed her. Like, that's never been a thing. Mm -hmm. But, like, my thought is maybe, like, he accidentally did. Like, he went to get Mm -hmm. her and, like, there was a struggle and something happened. He could have, like, been trying to, like, subdue her in a way, like, to get her to calm down and, like, you know, maybe in in a panic something happened. I don't know. There's no evidence of that, so that's just a little theory. Mm-hmm. That goes nowhere because there's literally nothing on it. But Joseph Brewer was obviously a person of interest, like, right away because something happened in that house. We don't know what it is. Her mother, Mary, she very adamantly several times in, like, actual interviews is like, my daughter didn't use drugs unless she was forced. And there's a lot, I'm sure there's a lot to Shannon's life that Mary wasn't 100% aware of because I don't think Shannon was going home and giving her mother, like, play-by-plays. So there's a lot that we we don't know because that life leads to some secrecy and should be. You don't have to tell people your business. But anyway, so Joseph Brewer, he was a resident of Oak Beach. And like I said, he was one of the last people to see Shannon alive. He had hired her from Craigslist, like Tara mentioned. And to kind of pick up where Tara is, there wasn't a lot because he was very quickly cleared in this. And it was basically because, well, one, there was no evidence that he did anything wrong to her ever, other than like maybe his voice on the phone call. But like, that's not even definitive. Like, he might not have even ever touched her. Like, maybe he just got close to her. 
But he did take a polygraph and was cleared through that, which is kind of like, in a way, is weird to me because like polygraphs are not admissible in court. Like I can't go to court and be like, see, he lied. You can't use them. So I'm I'm always curious why people are like, well, they passed a polygraph. Right. The other person I think we should start putting into our mind right now is someone Tara has not introduced, but his name is James Burke. Mm-hmm. James is the former Suffolk County police chief, and he worked this case. I've watched some videos with him, like about him, but also like in the movie that Tara talks about, he's kind of a main asshole in this. And basically, he is a character, I'll tell you that. For one, it's basically very well documented that he broke the law a lot. Like prostitution is illegal, and he often would like, participate in that kind of interaction and actually through there's like been an investigation into him an escort who identifies herself as leanne said that the first time she ever had an interaction with burke was in april of 2011 and she saw burke drag an quote-unquote asian looking woman by her hair to the ground and mind you she's at a party oh yeah She stated that the woman did, however, think that he was being playful rather than violent. But like, if that's the play that you have, that's pretty sure there's more violence in your life. Yeah. And Leanne said the second time she saw him, she decided to hook up with him as she was told that he was a high ranking official. And that like intrigued her. Like she's like, ooh, he's a cop. This is forbidden type thing. Yeah. And she would describe that he would violently yank her head during oral sex to the point where she was like tearing up and that like the sex was considered extremely rough. Their interaction ended with him not being able to perform or, you know, end. No, we're adults here. He was unable to orgasm essentially and basically threw money at her and was like, get out. And that was in August of 2011. So this is like the first time she met him is prior to Shannon going to this community, which is this is where this is taking place in Oak Beach. And then her actual like sexual encounter with him happened after Shannon's disappearance. And this woman had been a quote unquote professional for about five years. So she kind of knew. And Burke was kind of in charge of this investigation. I mean, he had some help, but he also, like, later on, he would block the FBI when the FBI was, like, they would ask for information, Mm. and he would just, like, not give it to them. Like, he'd basically give them the runaround and purposely leave them out of the loop. So people were like, what the hell, dude? Wow. Very suspect. Very suspect. Very suspect. Now, people kind of think that he's involved with this because he's not a good cop by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, he is currently serving time. Oh. Oh, yeah. You want to know why he's serving time? Yeah. What do you do now? (laughs) So in November of 2016, Burke was sentenced to 46 months in a federal prison, along with three years of supervised release for beating a man who stole a duffel bag filled with sex toys and pornography from his vehicle. And he's also like there was a charge of like trying to cover it up, like the fact that he did it and then tried to cover it up. Oh, red flags everywhere. Uh Uh-huh. And then in February of 2016, he also had charges of civil rights violations and conspiracy of obstruction of justice. 
So it's like kind of the same thing. So he basically is a, he's not a good guy. And he's the guy that's like in charge of this. So the theory is, is that like he responded to this call and found her. And the way they portray him, like I didn't watch the whole movie, guys, because it's a long movie and I started it late. (laughs) But like the way they portray him and the way he comes across even in like actual interviews and things like that is he's very like machismo, very like, you know, I'm the dude, like I'm the shit. And the way he talks about Shannon is like... She is so beneath him because she's an escort and he would go on TV and call her a prostitute or a hooker or things like that. Like, and that's something that bothered me and was the good thing that that movie pointed out was like, they talk about a lot of times we talk about the serial killer, but we don't necessarily like talk about the victim. And when we do in these kind of cases, it's always like Shannon was a prostitute. And it's like, that's her defining characteristic. Not that she graduated two years early because she's smart and was a dedicated student. So I'm not going to tell you who I think did it until later. (laughs) But um, James Burke is definitely on that list. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about one more person before I let Tara continue. (laughs) (laughs) It's fine. (laughs) And that is Dr. Charles Peter Hackett. He goes by Peter Hackett mostly, but like had to say his first name is Charles. How he kind of comes into the picture is about the time that like... Shannon's boyfriend calls her sister. Mary, Shannon's mom, gets a phone call from this guy and is like, hey, I'm totally paraphrasing. He did not say this exact verbatim. But basically was like, hey, my name is Dr. Peter Hackett. I live in Oak Beach. And is Shannon there? And she's like, no, Shannon doesn't live here. And he's like, okay, well, well, Shannon was staying with me because I have a home for wayward girls. And she was staying with me and I was treating her with some medication because I'm a doctor and I haven't been able to find her. And at this point, Shannon's mom was like, who, like, how did you get my number? He told her that how he got the number was that when anyone who stayed with him in his home for wayward girls would have to give like, obviously like an emergency contact type type situation. And that that's how he got her information. Now, Mary would tell the police this and be like, this guy called and they were like, and well, one, I don't think she could really remember who it was. But like when she did, when she remembered and she told them, they were like, no. And then they go talk to him. And he's like, I never made that phone call. Mind you, the dude actually called her twice Mm -hmm. within the first few days. And the first time he obviously the home for wayward girls. And then the second time he called, he basically was like, no, I don't run a home for wayward girls. I'm just really worried about her because like, that's just, I guess, like he was known and quote unquote known in the community of like sticking his nose into everyone's business. And he was like, they people would say that he was always helpful. So like if someone needed help, he was there. And that he says that he saw Michael Pack and Joseph Brewer that night and was try, like was going to try to help them. And that Michael Pack actually gave him the phone number and said, like, maybe since you're a doctor, you should call and talk to her mom. But it's like, you would have thought that like that would have happened on the like that night, like early that morning. But no, like we're talking two days later, he called her, mm-hmm. which is like totally fucked up. Yeah. The police were like prone to believe Dr. Hackett because he 
actually used to run their emergency services program. So he basically like worked with the police department and they were like, oh no, he's just a nice dude. Basically how they caught the fact that he did make those phone calls is they subpoenaed his records. They saw that he had it. There was another thing like in the movie, they kind of like, in, they kind of implicate that like he was part of this like association that had like the footage of that night. It's a closed gated community. I had a really hard time finding anything about that online as to like confirm. But I would think that that would, from what I can tell, like the things that they changed in the movie were like, I don't know, like relationships, like the ages of her kids, Mary's kids and stuff like that. It wasn't really like, I don't think they would have made this part up, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But basically what Mary thinks that she finds out is that, you know, Dr. Hackett is in charge of the footage that's in the neighborhood and the fact that he didn't turn it over to the police because the police never asked him for it, which is the dumbest excuse I've ever heard. Like, if you know that there could possibly be a potential, like, piece of evidence, like, you're, that's why they say for you to come forward. Yeah. He's sketched on his own. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. So I'm going to leave Dr. Hackett right here for right now. There's more info on him, but it actually will be better told a little later in the story. Mm -hmm. So going back to Oak Beach and Ocean Parkway, more in particular, like I said, that during the search for Shannon, they the authorities would end up finding a lot more than they probably thought they ever would. So they would end up finding more bodies. And these people had a lot of similarities. The first four victims had been dubbed as the Gilgo Four. Now, In terms of their bodies that were, you know, when they were found, the cause of death was all due to strangulation and their remains were found in burlap sacks there on the beach. So more things to connect. There had been two other serial killers in the area who would have been active in the kind of like 20 years previous to this time. And they were the Manorville Butcher and the Torso Killer. But authorities don't think, and most people don't think, that either of these serial killers really had anything to do with these girls. So the first victim that was found was Melissa Bartholomew. She was 24 years old. Melissa grew up in upstate New York, and then she would move to the Bronx in 2007 when she was 20. She was a very petite woman, and this is one of those things that I said you'll notice as similarities. For Melissa, she was 4 foot 10 and 95 pounds, so very, very tiny. Originally, she was a cosmetologist and she wanted to open up her own salon and she had a lot of like aspirations and goals as far as that career goes. When asked about like how she was as a person, her uncle Jim Martina is quoted saying she had the most wonderful personality I'd ever seen. She was just so full of life. People loved her. Just like Shannon, though, she would have a career change. Melissa became an escort and she would post on Craigslist as well. Money was really tough, so she pretty much did this as a means to survive and to get by and things like that. Her mother at the time had thought she was an exotic dancer, but her younger sister, Amanda, who she had like a closer relationship with, she knew she was an escort and she was like the only one in their family who actually knew. Melissa had originally gone missing on July 12th, 2009. So just a few weeks after that, her sister Amanda, who I didn't mention her age, she was 15, she started receiving phone calls. And these were really creepy and really disturbing and graphic and just like 
freaks them the fuck out, obviously. One of the phone calls, there's some quotes that are in an article. It said the caller had asked, is this Melissa's little sister? And she replies, yes. He says, do you know what your sister is doing? She's a whore, end quote. And Lynn, the girl's mother, with all of these calls and stuff, she started to document everything and she actually kept like a whole journal and she would turn that into the police so they would have that. And this person, who may or may not be the killer, was only interested in talking to Amanda. Lynn had recalled that one time she had answered the phone and as soon as he heard her voice, he hung up because he knew it wasn't Amanda. And after this, the, you know, the cops were like, tapping into the phone lines and like trying to triangulate where this person was. And the locations they picked up were in Times Square, Madison Square Garden and Massapeka. I'm sorry, I'm going to say probably all of these New York City names wrongs. <laughs> Please forgive me. Which all is a short drive from Gilgo Beach. And then they profiled the voice as a white male age range from late 20s to late 30s. And it was also said when he would talk, his voice was very calm, but extremely menacing. So kind of like made me think Zodiac vibes a little bit, which is that kind of creepy, calm voice type of situation. Makes sense. And it was also noted that the caller would, quote, spew and taunt allegations. And then he also didn't just call Amanda. He would text her, too. But poor fucking girl. The thought with this is like how they were kind of like, how the hell did he know about Amanda? Like, obviously, her work life and everything was separate from her family. So what the fuck? But they kind of theorized, you know, well, Amanda had visited Melissa twice after she had moved and everything. So they're like, maybe this person was could have been stalking the area or stalking Melissa or saw them out like you never know. And then he kind of figured out things from there type of thing. And then also the calls would end up stopping in August of 2009, which coincidentally or, you know, because my theory is right. During that time, Melissa's story, including all these terrifying calls and all of that info, aired on the news. So I think more than likely this person was watching the media to see like what they were reporting, what was going on with that possibly. And, you know, was like, OK, I need to stop before they catch on because if they have my location, it's just a matter of time type of thing. Right. And then, you know, obviously with like watching the news and stuff, serial killers love to relive their crimes and hear about it and talk about it and all of that. So there is that, too, because even if you go on the in the camp of that cop being the person who did it, like, obviously, he would probably know where to stop pushing his luck. Oh, for sure. And it would be like he would know if they're getting a triangulation like how fast they could get there. He probably figured now they're tapping her phone lines and it's on the news, so someone's actively working it. Right, exactly. So to jump ahead to December 11th, 2010 now, essentially like a year and a half later is where we're at from when she disappeared. Her body would be the first to be found while authorities were still searching for Shannon. And how they discovered her was not like they were canvassing an area, anything like that. It's literally how it is in the movie. The dude let the dog out to go to the bathroom and came across her, essentially. Yeah, it was just like a cop on patrol. And like, it seemed like that road was like really long. 
So it'd be like, honestly, as a dog owner, it would be perfect because like you could pull over to the side of the road and then like walk into the brush so that your dog didn't have to like potty right (laughs) on the side. Yeah. They would be on Ocean Parkway, which is right there by Gilgo Beach. Her body was just skeletal remains at this point. And in the last phase of decomp, which they said means basically she'd be dead anywhere from like a few months to a year at least. Obviously, when they first found her, they didn't know who she was and all of that. But now that we know, lining it up with when she disappeared, like totally fits. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Then two days later, authorities would find another body. This time, the victim would be Amber Lynn Costello. She was 27. She was born in Charlotte, North Carolina, but she grew up over in Wilmington, North Carolina. She was very petite as well. She was only four foot eleven. She had been married twice, and she was also said to be an extremely loving aunt to her nieces. Amber did have a past with drug addiction, but her sister Kimberly Overstreet tried to help her with her sobriety. She ended up taking Amber to a rehab program over in New York that she did. She did get sober for a while, and she was said to have been doing good for like a bout of time. During her sobriety, she was said she like found her faith and she attended church and she liked it. And, you know, like things were going good for the most part. But just as the others, she would get into the work of being an escort and seeking her clients via Craigslist as well. Like I said, that's just kind of how all of them did it. Her sister Kimberly thinks that her job is what got her off of her sobriety path. And that was kind of like a gateway and, you know, fell back into drugs because, you know, there's situations where that's present and stuff and just what happened. So she started using again. And Amber was last seen on September 2nd of 2010. She was seen getting into a client's car. Now, according to a friend of hers, she had said that she was like super comfortable with this dude and he was always paying her like extra money like crazy amount of extra money like six times her rate so she would make like so much fucking money with this dude and if i i believe it was her so she was like so comfortable with him that she didn't even take her phone with her that day which i mean like i know this was a decade ago but even just thinking back like still even in like 2010 i'm pretty sure i still took my cell phone with me like pretty much when i went and did shit yeah because like I mean, you and I live in a lived in a rural area, so like taking your cell phones at that time was like imperative because if you broke down. Yeah. It's like on that cusp where it's like you could see it on both sides. Like you could see like people still being like, man, I don't need my phone, but then, you know, other people take it type of thing. Cause like that was around the like the time like the iPhones first came out. Yeah. And you know, obviously that's not like a statement to do any kind of like victim shaming or anything, but it was just like, it made me think, well, what if she had her phone? Would she have been able to get help? Would she have been able to get away? Would she have been able to call 911? You know, could this have turned out differently if she had her phone? Who knows? So when the authorities found her body in December, she was skeletal remains as well. She was in the same state as the first victim being in the burlap. And her body was actually found extremely close to Melissa's. It was only 845 feet away. So another body would be found that same day, so December 13th still, and this would be the victim named Maureen Brainard Barnes, and she was 25 years old. Maureen had grown up in Groton, Connecticut. She was described as always being a very caring person. She actually had taken care of her sister, whose name is Melissa Can, after she had been in a really terrible car accident, and she was in the ICU. So she just was like her caregiver as she recovered. 
And she was also the same built as the other girls. She was 4'11", so really tiny. And Maureen had worked originally as a card dealer at Foxwoods Resort Casino, but had ended up quitting her job to stay home when she had her first child with her then-husband. Then later, when her son was born, Maureen went back to work at two jobs. She was a cashier, and then she also had a telemarketing job. And she ended up being laid off from the telemarketing job, which I'm sure is like, you know, it's like call center type thing. So that's probably where she got her main money from. Things got tight because she also got divorced, and she was now a single mom of an eight and one-year-old. So this is when she would turn to becoming an escort. Also, kind of the other factor onto her getting into this was that she was about to be evicted from her house and she needed money fast, is what her mom said. And Maureen was last seen on July 9th, 2007. She had been in Manhattan and she was going to meet some clients over at a Super 8. Her skeletal remains would be found in the same manner as the others and in a brush area that was just 264 feet from Melissa's body. It's like you listen to some investigators and they're like, we don't know if these are connected. It's literally a dumping ground. Like, how are they not connected? Mm -hmm. Now, the fourth victim they would find the same day as well. Her name was Megan Waterman and she was 22. Megan was from Scarborough, Maine, and she was a mother to a four-year-old daughter at the time of her disappearance and death. She would actually be the only victim that was over five feet tall. She wasn't very tall herself, but taller than me. She was 5'5". She was last seen on June 6, 2010, leaving a Holiday Inn Express in Hopog, New York. She then headed to Long Island with her boyfriend, who they later found out was her pimp. His name was Akeem Cruz. And her skeletal remains would be in the same brush area as Maureen and only about 370 feet away from her. So all very close together. But there would still be no Shannon. In fact, they would find the remains of six more victims, bringing the death count to 10. And the first after the Gilgo Four was Jessica Taylor. She was a 20-year-old who'd went missing in June of 2003, and she'd been murdered. Her partial remains had been founded in a, quote, wooded area on the northwest corner of Halsey Manor Road and along the Long Island Expressway in Manorville, but her head and hands were severed and missing. And those remains were found on July 26, 2003, so just a month later. Now, in regards to the remains that were missing, those would be the ones that were found on Ocean Parkway. And they did testing and stuff, and, you know, they were like, yes, it's a link, and then also had determined that she had passed away earlier in the month of July of 2003. After this, the next victim found would be called Jane Doe number 6 until this year. So big, big asterisk, because this literally just happened not too long ago. So on May 28th of 2020, authorities were able to ID her thanks to genetic genealogy testing, as we see in a lot of cases like this. Her name was Valerie Mack, and there wasn't a lot about her, probably because she was a Jane Doe for a long time, but it was said that she was in foster care, and from there she was adopted. But then, as an adult, she moved in with her boyfriend, or again, another case people think it's possibly it was her pimp. She was an escort, and she was working, and I believe also living in Philadelphia. And she was said to have gone missing in the spring slash summer of 2000 from the Port Republic area of New Jersey. And that just kind of like makes you think, 
like which is it because those are two very different seasons but like i don't know how her family life was type of thing but they had actually found her partial remains on november 19th of 2000 so some hunters were out and they were near housie manor road in manorville which same area as jessica taylor The body was wrapped in plastic and her head, hands, and right foot were missing. So more similarities to the last one. And those remains, the ones that were missing, are the ones they found at Ocean Parkway. And after, like, you know, their autopsies and all of that stuff, they determined that she had died in early November of 2000. And this start of the next group of victims that they found, it would be a few months. Uh, I did not mention it when I was talking about her, but they found Jessica Taylor on March 29th. And then with Valerie, they found her on April 4th of 2011. And it was really weird because they didn't report about Jessica and stuff until May. So... That's a little weird. Now, this next one is really sad. Honestly, ugh, it just broke my heart. So the next victim would be a baby. She's referred to as Baby Doe. She was 25 feet away from Valerie's remains, and they estimated she was between 16 to 24 months old, so at most two. And her remains were wrapped in a blanket, so it was different than the others. But she was also wearing gold earrings and a gold necklace. And Baby Doe connects with another victim that they find, and I'm going to mention her now. So she was Jane Doe number three, or called Peaches, and they found her on April 11th of 2011. She was actually Baby Doe's mother, and her remains had been linked to a torso that was found in the woods of Long Island's Rockville Center in 1997. Similar kind of situation as the others uh, hikers had came across her remains. Her torso was in a plastic bag that was in a green Rubbermaid container. And also with that was a maroon towel and a flowery pillowcase. And the reason she was nicknamed Peaches is because she had a tattoo of a peach with a bite out of it, like in the art, not a bite out of her, on her left breast. And that's what they used to identify her as, basically. She was estimated to be in her 20s to 30s, and she was also a woman of color. She also had a C-section scar, which makes sense since we know she was Baby Doe's mother. Her remains would be found seven miles away from Baby Doe, and she also had on very similar jewelry as the baby did. But between Baby Doe and Jane Doe 3, they found another victim that they classified as a John Doe. Now, there are articles and discussions that possibly they were transgender. So I'm just going to refer to them as Doe for this victim because, like, as you guys know, we're allies and I don't want to misgender someone, especially someone who's passed. So Doe was found on April 4th of 2011, and they were a little over a quarter mile from Megan Waterman, and they were described as, quote, an Asian male, 17 to 23, 5'6", and they also suggested that the person had been dead for about 5 to 10 years. And they also notated that there was blunt force trauma present as well. So the reason the subject of was this person transgender or not, why that conversation comes up is because 
They had found them in women's clothing. They, I'm sure, just kind of like theorized at this point that, or I know they theorized, they assumed, they came up with this theory that this person would dress in women's clothes to escort. And then the reason they ended up dead was because a client found out, got upset and killed them. That's the theory they kind of went with with this person. It's also noted that Doe had some teeth missing. There was a top front tooth and both bottom and top molars missing. And then they also notated that Doe had possibly a musculoskeletal disorder, which would have caused them to walk with a gait. But besides that, there really wasn't much else information about them. There was kind of like a rough sketch as well, but that's about it. The last victim from this time group uh, would be found on April 11th of 2011 as well. She was called the Fire Island Jane Doe. And this is another case yet again where partial remains were matched to a previous find. The original find of her partial remains was in Davis Park on Fire Island. So hence the name in 1996. People, it was same story here too. They were out walking and they found her legs wrapped in plastic. And they don't know much about this Jane Doe either. Basically, all they had concluded and noted was she was a white female within an age range of 18 to 50. That's a big ass age range. Yeah. I'm like, okay, so like uh, all adults almost. <laughs> Everyone. Everyone. They also noted that in the middle of her right leg, she had a three and a half inch lateral scar, one inch linear scar on the lateral mid to lower leg, and then also a half inch scar on the medial ankle. And she also had a two inch surgical scar that was there as well. The Doe Network suggests that the victim probably had a surgery type of thing. And then for some reason, they also notated she was wearing red nail polish on her toes. Got it. So Tara just mentioned a lot of victims. And there is a suspect that they do kind of link with this. He is a man by the name of John Bitteroff. Sorry, I say names wrong. We all know this. So we're going to call him John. And basically, John was a married carpenter and he lived in Manorville, which Tara just mentioned. In fact, he lived three miles from where the torsos of Jessica Taylor and Valerie Mack was found. Interesting. Very close. And he moved there in 2003, but it was noted that he was very well acquainted with the area before he moved there. He was announced as the suspect for at least one of the murders of these cases that Tara has talked about. So Suffolk County Prosecutor Robert Bianca Villa basically named him as a suspect. And this was in 2017. So like hell years later. Yeah. He was kind of linked through DNA. And on top of that, he was also known as a hunter who was said to really enjoy the killing of animals. So in 2014, he was linked to two homicide victims who were also sex workers. And basically how he got linked wasn't even like intentional. Basically, his younger brother, Timothy, was arrested for something different. And they took DNA and of course, they ran his DNA and it popped up as not like, not like a match, but a closer match to these two homicide victims that they had. And their names were Rita Tagretti and Colleen McNamee. 
and their bodies were found in 1993 and 1994. And the match was basically, like I said, his brother was convicted of an unrelated case in 2013. And then they kind of did what they did with the Golden State Killer, which is basically there were three brothers. So they had to like wait and get DNA. So they like got DNA from like a cigarette bud of John's brother, Kevin, and they ruled him out. And then they basically got DNA from John and basically was like, oh, it'd be you. (laughs) And so they made the arrest and he stood trial. And I mean, DNA evidence is pretty damning. Like if you're linked via DNA, people are going to be like, you did it. Mm -hmm. Basically, he is now serving two 25 consecutive year sentences for the connection of these two deaths, which kind of pisses me off because it's like he's been connected to like two murders of like women who were disarticulated and basically found in the same fashion as Long Island serial killer. And yet he is serving only like 50 years. Bullshit. Yeah. And he's he's like 20 years older than me. So like he's only 53 right now, which means... I guess, yeah, he would be dead. Yeah. I can see. <laughs> but, like, it doesn't say without parole. But there are some connections. So, like, here's a weird fact. Like, so Rita's daughter, who growing up and went into adulthood, was best friends with Melissa Bartholomew. That's weird. Yeah. And so it's one of the victims. And also said that, like, with Melissa's sister getting all of the calls... So before Melissa's death, she was actually getting a lot of calls from Manorville, which is where John lived at that time. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's like I, if he was killing way back in 93 and 94 when he was like in his 20s and 30s, it would make sense that like obviously most like sexual sadists don't stop killing. They just continue and he wasn't getting caught. And they had a lot of similar, like the disarticulation and all of that stuff. Like it's very similar. So they think that he might be the Long Island serial killer because, I mean, their remains were found very similar. And plus he lived only three miles from where Jessica Taylor and Valerie Mack was discovered. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot of weird coincidences, I would say. Mm -hmm. But he is now currently in the Clinton Correctional Facility in New York. Gotcha. He is behind bars. Good, as he should be. So to circle back to Shannon, authorities would end up making some discoveries in the end of 2011. So they had originally found her belongings in a marsh right there next to Ocean Parkway in Gilgo Beach. And this was her jeans, her shoes, her purse, and her ID. Then just a quarter mile from there, they would find her skeletal remains. And this would be on December 13th of 2011. Here's where things start to get interesting. So... Authorities believed that Shannon died of natural causes and theorized she essentially accidentally drowned when she stumbled into the marsh. A medical examiner ended up actually ruling her death as inconclusive. Investigators swore that they didn't find any linking evidence to her death with the other Gilgo Beach victims. Now, Shannon's family was like, this is a crock of bullshit, so fuck you. They decided to hire an independent medical examiner named Michael Baden and decided to do their own autopsy in 2016. And while Baden wasn't definitively able to conclude that it was a homicide, he 
did claim that her death was not by drowning, like at all. And there was signs of strangulation. So that does lean towards homicide, obviously. You're not going to strangle yourself to death. And another thing that he noted as being strange was that she was found face up. And they said that, like, that's really unlikely if she drowned in a marsh. She would have been face down. Right. Because if she was, like, face up, she could have just sat up. Right. Exactly. Unless she was being held down. Yes. Exactly. Totally. So, an interesting thing about where they found Shannon's remains is our boy Peter. Basically, at this point in time, all of the area had been searched, but like this one little piece of marsh where Shannon just happened to be. And wouldn't you know that it's the place where if you were to stand on the back of Peter Hatchett's deck, you could actually see the area. So this is something that kind of people were like, excuse me, what? Take that into the account that he did have burlap in his area or in his home. And the fact that he knew the area really well. He'd lived there for 30 years. But I mean, this is like the weird thing. A lot of times when you look at cases, they talk about like serial killers and how they'll like put themselves into the investigation or they'll like try to help, especially ones that are like narcissistic. And I definitely think that he falls into that category. So basically her body was found in like the marsh behind his house. And like Tara said, they believe that she entered in there and drowned. Well, also like one thing that I thought was really weird is that they're like, oh, she drowned in a marsh. But like in this particular marsh, there was only like less than three inches of water. I was watching a detective talk and he's like, she would have had to try to drown herself. She would have had to like put her face in there. It was to the point where like she could turn her head and not be in the water. But obviously that was ruled out. Mm -hmm. So like Hatchet is like this guy of interest, but like the police don't take it seriously at all. Like at all. They're like, oh, no, it's just Dr. P. Like, I don't think they call him that, but that's what I'm going to say. And I think also like he was kind of one of their own. If that makes sense. Like, he worked with them. Mm -hmm. But I guess he has a history of, like, injecting himself into these type of stories and exaggerating his role in these type of events. Like, in 1996, apparently, a TWA flight burst into flames. It was flight TWA flight 800, and it killed about 230 passengers. And basically, Hatchet was like, I was the lead doctor, and I took care of everything, and I saved all these people. And people were like, no. And so basically he was characterized as like a storyteller or an exaggerator. And he kind of had a little bit of an alibi. His wife and kids were home. But like also it's like four in the morning, five in the morning. Right. They never say that she was like, oh, I knew he was there. And he's like weird to her. So basically because of this, he was ruled out as a suspect as the Long Island serial killer. But an interesting fact is that shortly after her body was found in early 2012, he put his house on the market. Oh. And moved to Fort Myers, Florida, which wouldn't you know that I was in like a weird thread about trying to find something about somebody completely else, another suspect. And I found this article that basically it's like a few miles from his house in Florida, they found a skull. Oh my God. I don't think he's off the hook. I have a big theory. I'll talk about it at the end. I think that's weird. Like, okay, like I get like he lived in an area where like serial a serial killer was dumping a body if it wasn't him. Like, I get that, right? It makes sense. Mm-hmm. 
However, if he were to move and the killings were to continue, you would know that it was him. And it kind of looks like it may have. Yeah. My favorite thing is he was cleared. But what Shannon's family decided to do was they didn't take it lying down. They assumed he had something to do with it because, like, why would he call? Why would he do this? They filed a wrongful death suit against him. And basically a lot of it got thrown out because there's, like, no proof. But, like, some of it was still in. My favorite video I watched on this was that, like, the reporter was following him out from the courthouse, and they're, like, interviewing him the whole way out. Like, it's not like they fucking snuck up on his ass, right? They, like, follow him. He's getting in his car. He's taking off his jacket. He's, like, talking to them. And then all of a sudden, he just, like, grabs his heart and falls to the ground. And they're like, oh, my God, are you okay? And he's like, oh, I'm a defibrillator. (laughs) And I was like okay, what's happening? And he's like, uh, my defibrillator, which I don't know if that's the right thing he should have said. Like, because I thought the defibrillator was like the paddles. Yeah. Did he mean like pacemaker? That's what I would think it would be. So it was like weird that he said defibrillator because he's a fucking doctor. Right. So he's like on the ground. Like, of course, like someone has a camera and they're filming him and he's on the ground. People were coming up. And like the cameraman is like, I'll call, he's like, I'll call 911. And the doctor's like, if you call 911, I'll refuse and stuff. And then all of a sudden, like he gets up and this guy's there. And it's like a four minute, like the whole video, like you see them like interviewing him to this point. And like <laughs> he basically gets up off the ground and these people caused me to have a defibrillation. Oh my God. They're like, get pictures of these clowns is what he calls the the reporters. And then he just gets in his car and drives away. If I'm what I'm thinking is correct, like he would have had like a little mini cardiovascular like episode. So like he should be seen by some sort of paramedic. Yeah. And like I get that he's a doctor, but like, but it was like weird because he's the guy's like standing there talking to him. The doctor puts his coat in the back seat, shuts it and turns around and acts like he's scared. Like it'd be like if I snuck up on you, you'd be like, oh, my God. You know, but that's not what happened. Like, they were with him for, like, four whole minutes before that. Oh, my God. So, but now he lives in Florida and is apparently killing people in Florida. I don't know. That's speculation. (laughs) Yeah. So Shannon's family ended up having the funeral and the services for her after her independent autopsy in March of 2015. Sadly, Mary would never get the answer on what happened to her daughter. The reason for that is not being like, it's closed, it's done, anything like that. Um, There's more death. So her daughter, Sarah, dealt with mental illness. She had a really hard time with it. She was said to be in and out of psychiatric facilities. And things got so bad that basically... Sarah was saying that these voices and stuff were telling her that Mary was evil and like essentially the devil and things like that. And it got so out of hand that Mary ended up having primary custody over her son, Hayden. And it was said that even in these facilities, her behavior was so, like, combative and stuff. They actually moved her to, like, from a voluntary type of more laid back kind of place to, like, a, like, where law enforcement sent criminals kind of thing. She needed much more security and things like that. Oh, okay. 
but she would get out of the hospital in 2016. Hayden stayed with Mary. So that meant Sarah was no longer getting government assistance checks and things like that because she was not the person in care of the child. And it was said that she started becoming like super isolated and she stopped taking her medications and everything like that. And then in July of 2016, Sarah called Sherry and told her she was hearing voices. And, you know, Sherry told their mom and she was like, do you want me to call 911? Do you want me to come over whatever? And she's like, I don't want to go back. Just like come over here and help me. Well, from here, when Mary was there. She would stab Mary 227 times. What the fuck? And also bashed her head in with a fire extinguisher. I'm sorry. 200 and what? 227. Do you know how long that would take? Mm-hmm. And at what point was there nothing left? Also, to add more to it, it said she set off the extinguisher in Mary's mouth. Because she wasn't sure if she was dead. So she wanted to drown her. After stabbing her 227 times and beating her with a fire extinguisher? Yeah. I mean, I get that they think she was schizophrenic, but like, shit. Yeah. So, of course, she was found guilty of Mary's murder in 2017. She was sentenced 25 years to life in the state prison there. So that's kind of what happened with that, sadly. I was just like, oh, my God, like, I cannot believe there is more to these cases. It's just it just keeps going. So as of late, in regards to the 911 call, the New York Supreme Court in 2018 ordered that the Suffolk County Police Department needed to turn over the audio and the transcripts. And there was an update. Like, I think they're still dealing with the course of like it took two years. So pretty much where they are now is like, they're like, okay, like, yes, 100%. This needs to fucking happen. Like, you need to hand this shit over to them type of thing. And that was like really recent. That was also during like early summer and stuff. So we don't really have any other updates besides that with that. And on top of that, there is also five additional victims that kind of have different years and whatnot, but also kind of revolve around this Long Island area that they think could also potentially be victims of this Long Island serial killer. So they are looking into that. If you would like to read up on them, go ahead and go to the sources page. Those victims are Tina Fogilia, Cherries, or another Jane Doe. And sadly, it's like with Peaches. It's because she had a tattoo. Tanya Rush, Jane Doe, who they dubbed as woman with a gold pig necklace, and Natasha Hugo. So if you guys would like to read more on those and see what you think, definitely take a look. There are parallels that make sense why they think these potentially could be even more victims. So I know you said you had some theories on what you think has been going on with this, so I'd love to hear what you think. I do have one more suspect, though, who didn't fit into anywhere into this this timeline wild card wild um, card his name is james bissett and basically james was like the only reason he's kind of linked to those cases at all is that he committed suicide two days after they found shannon's body he owned like a nursery type place and he was the main supplier of burlap in the area so they're like he killed himself after they found her and he had burlap, so he must be guilty. But this leads me into my my first theory, is that this is not 
one killer. I don't think so either. I think that the Long Island serial killer is made up of several people who all know each other, all operate within knowing each other, and basically all have like quote unquote skin in the game. So they're they're not gonna like rat each other out. I think it is made because James Bessett is friends with James Burke. So they knew each other, which also could be like if James is James Burke is the serial killer, that's how he could be getting it. And could be an easy explanation to why James Bissett killed himself is because maybe he was like, holy shit, I've been supplying the burlap to my friend. Yeah. And felt guilty. Also, people, suicide is a very complex thing and people have myriad of emotions and you never know. Yeah. I kind of feel like Shannon was different enough. If she's a victim of the serial killer, she's a victim of opportunity. As in, like, they literally ran into her. Yes. Mm -hmm. And they killed her. It wasn't like, because how I'm thinking it happened is a lot of these women, I mean, this case, this was also known as the Craigslist killer. It was another name for this killer. Mm -hmm. Because it's all connected. And it would make sense that if, it seems really fucking weird. Like, to be really honest, is like, Oak Beach doesn't seem like that big of a community. It's a small, private, like, neighborhood. Right. And the fact that there's, like, so many people who belong to this area who are into escorts. Makes you think there's some, like, what was that movie? The Get Out movie? Yeah. Like, that's not escorts, but, like, you know how everyone was in on it? That's, like, what it makes me think. No, a thousand percent. And... If you look at like like look at the Manson family, like they were a group of people who killed together. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not unheard of for people to like work in like contingency with other people in these type of crimes. And like if someone is brought in, let's say like Joseph Brewer contacts an escort, has her come out, and then all of these people like are a part of it. Each person has a part to play. And maybe, like, with Shannon, because her driver was still around, it was, like, weird. Yeah. I don't know. Like, honestly, I know that they're like, well, the doctor really can't, like, he couldn't have done it because his wife was home. It's like, that's bullshit. Because how many times have we, like, you've read cases where, you know, the wife has known something was up for years, but just never said anything to protect her spouse. Like, let's be honest, wives are untrusted. (laughs) (laughs) worthy when it comes to their spouses because like unless it's they're hurting someone that that person cares about like that husband is the person they care about and especially because they have two children together yeah i think that john like bitter off person is totally involved in this if there is one serial killer for this i peg him for it Mm -hmm. like if it has to be one person like here's my theory on this you know i watch criminal minds and therefore i think i'm like i know everything about everything criminal i'm kidding but like (laughs) i do read a i do read a lot of like fbi things but like (laughs) sorry i just amused myself there for a minute it's fine but like one of the things that they really look at is the comfort zone in killing and typically it triangulates it would make sense that when he relocated he relocated to be closer to his victims especially if they were from like 10 years before because what would link him And the fact that, like, he's already been caught, his DNA is on record with other cases. I I think that's why he's pegged for this. They wanted the easy answer. Right. Oh, no, I think it's totally, 
I, I think that's why it's like hard to solve this because unless, you know, they catch someone doing it or they discover new DNA on, on these remains, which kind of makes me think like the police weren't taking this shit seriously. Like they just weren't Mm-mm. like at all. So like, what was the real investigation like? I think once they heard the word prostitute, they just were like, oh, just another prostitute dead. And I'm like, that's unacceptable. They're humans. Exactly. From what I can tell is this police system in that county was like volatile. Like it wasn't good. It's just like toxic with toxic. So, yeah. Yeah. It's either like everyone's involved or it's just John. Yeah, exactly. It's it's so hard to be like, which one do you actually pick, though? Because that, that's how I've been very torn this whole time, too. So very much on the same page. Well, and then it just like weirds me out, like like the fact that like Peter Hackett would call her mother, even if he's the type of person who would get like caught. Here's the reason why, like at this point in time, she wasn't even really reported missing. No, not yet. Mm -mm. So like for him to call and say that, you know, I don't know. Suspect. It's a lot. And who would expect a like an uppity town on Long Island to be the place where bodies were dumped? Like you you just don't think that it happens there. So Yeah. That is my inconclusive answer. <laughs> yeah. We are undecided. So yeah, that is going to go ahead and wrap us up here today on the Long Island Serial Killer. We would love to know your opinions, thoughts, and comments on who you think is the Long Island Serial Killer. Is it one suspect? Is it the whole community? What is going on? Let us know what you think. But we appreciate you guys tuning in today and each and every week. We will go ahead and say bye for now, but we will be back on Thursday for another episode. Bye. Bye. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.